0: For the past several weeks, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. After he arose from the grave, he appeared to the women who had come to the tomb to care for his body, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and to the apostles, as well as to over 500 people at one time in Galilee. And then, after removing all doubt that he had actually physically risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, leaving with a promise that he would send his Holy Spirit and that he would himself one day return. Jesus had spent three years preparing the apostles To take the gospel into the world. He had commissioned them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He had chosen twelve apostles, but one betrayed him and then took his own life. And while the remaining eleven were waiting in Jerusalem for the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit, they selected Matthias to take Judas' place. Now, Luke indicates that they prayed, sought God's direction before drawing lots, and that Matthias was then numbered with the eleven apostles. It is, however, nowhere stated that Matthias was actually the one God had chosen to replace Judas. And some are convinced that the Apostle Paul was to be that twelfth apostle. But what sets apostles apart from disciples is that they were personally taught by Jesus and commissioned by him. And when Luke closes his gospel, Paul was nowhere in sight and certainly would not qualify as an apostle. That changes, however, in the ninth chapter of Acts, where we read of one more post-resurrection appearance. And this post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance is so important that is actually recorded three times in Acts. We're going to take just a brief look at that final appearance of Jesus this morning before beginning a study of the first letter of that final apostle. In the 26th chapter of Acts... Paul is telling Agrippa about his encounter with the risen Christ. He begins by telling how he had furiously pursued Christians, arresting them and condemning them to death if they wouldn't give up their faith in Jesus. He continues by saying, While thus engaged, As I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Saul, the persecutor of the church, then became the great apostle Paul. Now, it took him a while to understand that his call was to be primarily an apostle to non-Jewish people. But he eventually got it. And on his first missionary journey, he traveled to the Roman province of Galatia, establishing churches and appointing elders in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Upon completion of that first tour, while reporting back to the Christians in Antioch of Syria who had sent him out, he received some disturbing news that prompted his first epistle. And it's to that epistle, most likely written around 49 AD, that we turn our attention today. We begin with a look at the principles of the epistle, the one who sent it and those to whom it was written. We're beginning to study in the book of Galatians. This morning, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Now, Paul begins his first epistle, which is simply a formal letter intended to be read in churches, as he will begin all his letters, with the possible exception of Hebrews, which he may or may not have written, by identifying himself as the author of the letter. And as he does in the majority of his letters, he identifies himself as an apostle, This time, however, he emphasizes his apostleship more than usual, and he does so because his position as an apostle was being challenged. Some were apparently insisting that since he wasn't one of the original twelve, that he wasn't a real apostle, and that therefore what he taught lacked apostolic authority. So it begins by stating in no uncertain terms that he is an apostle, and by making it very clear that he understands what an apostle is. That an apostle is one directly designated as such by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, his readers were no doubt aware of the fact that the church in Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. And Paul isn't denying that when he speaks of himself as an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man. The church in Antioch had sent him out as a missionary, but it had nothing to do with his becoming an apostle. No man nor any agency of man, including the church, can send someone out with apostolic authority. A church might help provide financial support for an apostle. It could pray for him. It could even offer some suggestions and direction as to where he might go. But it could not make him into an apostle. Only Christ could do that. And no man, nor agency of man, had made Paul into an apostle. He makes that very clear in the greeting to his letter, and he's going to support that in the body of his letter. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that means when he writes, he does so with the full authority of Jesus Christ. If we don't like something he's written, we can't dismiss it as simply being from Paul. You know, everything he has written has the same authority as that which is written in red letters in some Bibles. What Paul has written is Holy Scripture. And the Apostle Peter confirmed this when he classified Paul's writings with the rest of the Scriptures. Well, after thus identifying himself, Paul includes the brethren who are with him in the greeting. Who they are and where they are, he doesn't say. If the letter was written at the conclusion of the first missionary journey, it was probably written from Antioch in Syria. And Barnabas would have no doubt been one of the brethren sending greetings along with the Apostle Paul. Paul also notes that the letter is being addressed to the churches of Galatia. And we do know that he established several churches in the Roman province of Galatia on his first missionary journey. But not all scholars are in agreement that those are the churches to which this letter is addressed. Until the 18th century, it was assumed this letter had been addressed to people who were Galatians by nationality, the the Gauls who had invaded northern Asia Minor or Turkey, In the third century B.C., even though we have no record of Paul establishing churches there. And it's very sketchy that he ever got there. Historical and geographical research done since then has convinced most scholars that the recipients of this letter were indeed the churches mentioned in Acts. And if you want to explore the northern and southern Galatia theories in detail, you're welcome to do so. But we're going to assume This letter was addressed to the churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. So thus far, we've discovered that the Apostle Paul was the author of Galatians and that it was addressed to the churches of Galatia. But there's more to discover even in the greeting to this letter. In fact, if you read between the lines just a little bit, we might even discover the theme of the epistle. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now Paul includes in his greeting the expressed desire that the recipients of his letter also be recipients of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing unusual in that. We find that in all of his personal letters. It would be a mistake, however, to dismiss this as a mere formality or to assume it's a simple wish that his letter finds everyone well. As John R.W. Stott notes, although grace and peace are common monosyllables, they are pregnant With theological substance. He goes on to say that these words actually summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. That the nature of salvation is peace, reconciliation, peace with God, peace with men, peace within. And the source of salvation is grace, God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works his loving kindness to the undeserving, and that this grace and peace flow from the Father and Son together. Now, that much is included in all of Paul's letters, in the greeting to all of his letters. But he goes on here to say even more about grace, laying a foundation for what he will have to say in the body of the letter, and giving us a hint As to the theme of the letter, he briefly states the nature and purpose of grace. Showing how grace was expressed to man and what it cost. And he does so by reminding his readers that Jesus gave his life for our sins. That he went to the cross to save us emphasizing that salvation comes from what Christ did, not what we do. And that, in fact, is going to be the theme of Paul's entire letter, that we are saved by what Christ did, not what we do or don't do. Because of this emphasis on grace, Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The document that frees us from bondage of trying to earn our salvation. Now, you may be aware that grace is also the theme of Romans. In fact, Galatians has been called an early rough draft. Of Romans. But that's not to depreciate it as less important, only to recognize that it is shorter and less formal. The Reformers loved this book. So much so that Luther said he was betrothed to it, even wedded to it. He even gave it a personal name and called it his wife. He loved this book. It freed him from the works-oriented concept of salvation that characterized the church of his day. It brought him new life, and new life to all who would understand it. Indeed, grace is the theme of Galatians. But Paul also wanted to make something clear about grace from the outset. Grace is not license to sin. Christ gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of this present evil age. He died to rescue us from the power of evil and the values of this world. Grace doesn't allow us to view God As a kindly old grandfather who mumbles, boys will be boys, and overlooks our sin. God's grace confronts sin head on. And then frees us from the bondage to sin, allowing us to live lives victorious over sin. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But it does mean that when sin manages to ensnare us in a time of weakness, we can be immediately freed from its grasp to continue living a life that brings glory to God. And the thought of that causes Paul to break into an unexpected doxology of praise. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. We now know the author and recipients of this letter. And we've noted its theme. What then is the occasion for writing? Verses 6 through 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before. So I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Wow. You know, it's at this point in his letters that Paul usually commends the churches, to which he's writing. But he had no word of commendation for the Galatians. Instead, he expresses his amazement at what has happened to them and how quickly it has happened. He was writing because the Galatians were deserting the Lord. Now, it probably came as a shock to the Galatians to hear Paul say that. They didn't think they were deserting the Lord. In fact, they no doubt thought they were becoming more devoted to Him. After all. They were trying even harder than ever before to do what they thought they needed to do to please him. You see, the Judaizers had gotten to them. As soon as Paul had left Galatia, some men came from Judea teaching that Gentiles couldn't just become Christians that they first had to become Jews. And that in order to be acceptable to God, Gentiles would have to do everything that the Old Testament required of a Jew. And the Galatians were trying to do it. What they didn't realize was that to add anything to the grace of God is to deny the sufficiency of Christ's death. The Judaizers had told them that they couldn't be saved by simply coming to Christ in faith and allowing Him to cleanse them of their sins in that watery grave of baptism. They told them they also had to be circumcised and abide by all the laws and customs and restrictions of the Old Testament. What they were saying was that the gospel Paul preached wasn't good enough. And the Galatians were buying it. They had accepted a different gospel, which Paul quickly added was not a gospel at all. It wasn't good news. It was bad news. It was nothing more than bondage of the law added to the gospel, which in effect took all the good news out of the gospel. And Paul was really upset by this. In fact, he said those who were teaching this were intentionally distorting, perverting the gospel. And because of it, he said they were to be condemned, accursed, damned. And he said it again, just to make sure they didn't miss it. Those who distort the gospel with new revelations or additional requirements are accursed. Now, obviously, the Judaizers aren't causing a problem in the church today. But there are those who claim to have received latter-day revelations from an angel that are contrary to that which we've received. And there are those who would saddle us with additional requirements and restrictions to be saved. Paul's message to us in Galatians is quite simply this. Don't let anyone rob you of your freedom in Christ. The freedom to know that you are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's death. And that nothing else is needed. Now, if you truly understand that, you will be changed by it. But you won't find yourself under bondage to the law. You'll be under bondage to love. A love for Christ that will motivate you to live a life that pleases and honors him. And in doing so, you'll have a peace that comes from the grace that is greater than all your sin. I hope you're looking forward to falling in love with this great book. We have been given grace greater than our sin. Let's celebrate